Hello, girls and boys. It's BungaCast. This is the Global Politics Podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex O'Healy. It's Wednesday, the 20th of April. And as always, I'm with Philip Cunliffe. Hello, Phil. Hi, but I want to object to the transphobic opening there. Oh, uh, and uh, non-gender conforming people. Uh, which actually, speaking of conformity, uh, George, hello. Uh, you have uh, recently contributed uh, an epi- uh, not an episode, but a chapter to a new edited collection about conformity, it seems. Hi, George. Which is, which, which is funny because you are actually the most conformist of the three of us. Uh, hi, hi, both of you. Um, I did actually think of it as an as an episode, not a chapter, because that's what I think of edited collections as nowadays, a series of episodes of of the same book. Um, but yeah, so my chapter is called Popular Sovereignty, Left Liberalism and the Brexit Culture Wars, where culture wars are, is, uh, as I explain, in inverted commas, because I think there's some politics going on behind that, that culture war. Um, and yeah, in this chapter, which um, listeners can read if they are interested. Uh, I argue that, yeah, Lexit is a good example of a conformist rebellion. Um, and I will just leave that hanging there. If you think that's an interesting argument, pick up the the, the book uh, or an interesting proposition, pick up the book and have a read. And of course, the book in question is called The Conformist Rebellion, uh, which is edited by Elena Lange and Joshua pickett Paulus. And George, uh, our very own George Hoare, spoke to the two editors. But before we go to that interview, uh, George, why don't you tell us a little bit more in depth about the chapter that you wrote? What's the argument? Yeah, so my, my chapter, um, Popular Sovereignty, Left Liberalism and the Brexit Culture Wars is the title. Um, and the basic idea is that Brexit appeared to be a protracted culture war um, in the sense that this is the way that many of the actors in British politics wanted to wanted to style it, wanted to basically um, essentially delegitimize working class uh, leave voters. And yeah, and I, I, my argument is that this is a good example of the political function of the left, the British left in performing a conformist or yeah, in, in giving some kind of conformist rebellion that looks or appears to critique the status quo, while in fact providing one of the most significant ideological defenses of it. So the basic idea of the chapter is that Lexit is a conformist rebellion in the sense that it's a this classic three-stage ideological maneuver. It looks like you've thought seriously about and know the, the problems with something, but still the practical result is to channel people into a position which supports that thing. Um, so it, it appears to be a rebellion, but in fact it reinforces conformity. And that's that Lexit position is something which has been attributed perhaps to, to some people on this podcast, um, but is in fact the like diametrically opposed to a to a Marxist position on Brexit. So hopefully this can uh, uh, ir- irritate, frustrate, engage some some listeners if they if they do pick up this collection. I think it's an I think it's an important one. Uh, not the chapter that is, but the collection. So yeah, I was very pleased to be uh, to contribute a chapter to it. I'm surprised you, why why legs. I mean, I thought Lexiters were people who wanted to leave the EU, but like because it's neoliberal, not that they were remainers. Wow, pick. Have a look at have a look at the chapter. It will it will blow it will blow your mind, mate. I mean, honestly, because that is the appearance. But in fact, the reality is that they say, well, no, the balance of forces or whatever term they might use are such that, yes, we, do, we would like to leave the EU, but actually we have to prevent a Tory, a bad Tory Brexit or, a, you know, any of these kind of economic catastrophes. Right, so right. actually, what's the practical conclusion of Lexit? Oh, we need to remain. We, we don't want rupture. 
So it was the it was easier to imagine the end of capitalism than it was the end of the European Union. <laughs> right. So political, the capitalist realism of Mark Fisher, I think everybody says, oh, now it's overturned. But I think it was actually first overturned in the 2016 to 2019 Brexit battles in British politics, because it was there that it was very clear that the British left thought that they could have socialism in the Europe, but they wanted so they preferred socialism in the European Union, which is impossible to the idea of leaving the European Union. So they made the first decisive break with capitalist realism. Okay, very good. Well, um, as listeners will find out, of course, the book, the edited collection is far more wide ranging than just concerns British politics. Uh, there's theoretical discussions about art and so on, which you'll find out uh, listening to George's interview with Elena and Joshua, which you're about to hear now. Um, and then we'll be back for an after party. Of course, if you want the whole of the interview and our after party, where we'll have plenty actually to discuss of the issues raised in the interview, uh, you'll have to sign up. It's at patreon.com slash BungaCast. We hope to see you there. Catch you in a bit. So thanks so much, uh, Eleanor and Joshua, for joining us today. Um, just to get straight into it, uh, what led the two of you to plan to do this collection? How did it how did it come about? Yeah, so um, I tried to aim for a short answer, but uh, to really understand where the collection is coming from, uh, I think I have to digress a little bit and go back to the time when I was associated with a big British Marxist academic journal, and that is historical materialism. I was an author of several pieces um, on Marx value theory. I was a peer reviewer for them. I was an author of the book series for the book that came out last year. And I was also a regular at the annual London conference. Um, okay, so when you work in academic Marxism, everybody knows more or less everybody else, thanks also to social media that, um, that has, well, the impact it has and where these theories were quite widely discussed, you know, actually on a, on a fairly high, high level. But um, as with social media come, um, you know, problems that come with it, bad repercussion. I think it was first in 2015 or so that I realized there was quite a level of um, ostracizing people for not holding the correct views. I remember there was an unreal witch hunt against uh, Marxist political economist Andrew Kleiman because he allegedly he made some some remarks intending to be funny about uh, Asians eating dogs. I don't even remember the context. But I, what I remember is that um, Kleiman, who was an outspoken critic of Michael Heinrich, he got a lot of uh, backlash from the Heinrich followers um, on, on Facebook. It was, but the so the pretext was Kleiman's alleged racism, not the substantial disagreement he held with Michael Heinrich on, I think it was the transformation problem and other theoretical matters. So these irrelevant accusations became default mode if someone didn't follow a particular line of thought or school. So at that point, I think I realized that the, the racism or you know the, the sexism homophobia accusation was externally applied to cancel um, you know, the, the views of, of one's opponent, even when the topic under discussion had absolutely nothing to do with, uh, with race or gender. So it was right. the blueprint for what was now on a regular basis, what, what came to appear on a regular basis. And it came from very sophisticated, you know, uh, academic leftist circles. And then um, historical materialism or HM, 
um, itself became a really difficult environment and a pretty, yeah, I would say, you know, awful journal. So they were moving away from, from being a great uh, publication from deeper questions of Marx and theory towards promoting what I would call, or what I have called uh, also in the book, the Trinity formula of race, class, and gender as equally important signifiers for understanding um, the capitalist mode of production. And that was, of course, the breakthrough for an absolutely terrible interpretation of Marx's theory that, that had its way all over academia. So it was not just, you know, British Marxism or this particular British Marxist journal. So then you had academic conferences that, that had 25 panels on queer Marxism or about, I don't know, the racial imagery of Harry Potter and other ridiculous themes. And it was mainly just a spectacle where young people could meet and show off their, I don't know, Black Lives Matter t-shirts and their pink hair and had their BDS petitions signed. It was sort of a group formation uh, happening there. No, no serious political discussion or theory, like theoretical discussion. But I think it really fell apart in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected. So I happened to be yeah. at the HM conference in London the very day he was elected. And I remember there was a, a general uh, panic and pearl clutching going on. And there was a spontaneous uh, mass protest at one of the bigger lecture halls at the SOAS at the London School of Oriental and African Studies. I remember um, that was just, it was just everybody, are you, are you going to come to this mass protest against Trump? And I say, no, I'm going to attend a different panel. I mean, it's everyone's right to go to do whatever they want. But it was just this, this general perception of Trump as this racist and, and bigot. And this reminded me that recently one of your guests, uh, Malcolm Chayuni, said, so everybody on the left is a good materialist until a so-called racist comes along. And at that point, it was clear that the materialist um, analysis of the present and of history was completely pushed to the back and mm. was almost abandoned. And around the same time, just to close this off, um, yeah. there was a specifically regressive theoretical stream that became all the rage in these circles. And that was social reproduction theory, feminism, which, so they, they, these social production theory feminists, they try to move the side of exploitation away from the process of production towards women performing unpaid household tasks. And it was also completely ignorant of Marx theory. And I was quite invested in writing a big critique of this stream. And so while I was still working on my book um, on Marx and Uno Koso, I wanted to launch a book project that looks at how social reproduction feminism has co-opted all discussions about Marx value theory and pushed into a very hegemonic um, neoliberal direction. And then um, mm -hmm. through this interest in social production theory feminism, I met Joshua, who was also interested in dissecting SRT feminism. But then uh, through the course of our talks, we realized that the poor theoretizations of Marx theory were not limited to SRT feminism alone, but that there was a deeper problem with the left. There were um, so moralizations and flawed epistemologies around gender and race and its conflation with class. Um, that was, I think, the main problem that we saw with the left. And then we decided to gather a group of like-minded people around us who would defend Marx against the left and they agreed to contribute. And that was um, how this volume came about. Great. So <clears throat> some of the limitations of 
of uh, historical materialism journal and um yeah right back to 2016 joshua how, how about you is this a sim- similar I, mean, I would imagine there's some personal well, differences but I think, a similar story. I think it's complementary maybe it comes from a different direction but it but it kind of ends at a similar point um i was involved for quite a few years more or less the um uh, the obama year in these uh militant political projects which were you know, we were we were nominally Leninist. We saw an interest in, in organizing the working class, you know, outside of the NGOs, outside of the, the union bureaucracies. And, um, uh, you know, we attempted to theorize this at a relatively high level. You know, we studied, you know, capital. We studied Lenin. We studied the come in turn proceedings and, and all that kind of stuff. But but one of the obstacles we encountered and we consistently encountered among those we tried to build relationships with was this more or less unquestioned hegemony of this kind of, um, you know, postmodern activist ideology of anti-oppression, anti-racism, feminism, queer theory, and so on. And also people who nominally claim this, this Leninist heritage trying to assimilate this, um, uh, this postmodern particularism to the, the classical Marxist critiques of the national question or the woman question. When in reality, these are these are fundamentally different things. They have different methodologies, yeah. and they're, they're carried out from from a different perspective and in service of a of a, of a different strategy. But but even among the the small minority of people today who would claim to be um, uh, Leninists, that distinction and its its true um, extent and complexity has um, largely been lost. And that was one thing that I observed actually. You know stood in the way of us even succeeding practically because it obscured, you know, the, the centrality of the wage relation and of the site of production of surplus value uh, as a basis for the, the constitution of any possible, you know, antagonistic political subject. And, and it, led, it led to increasing infatuation with, you know, these, these social movements, which are essentially yeah. just these, these astroturf middle class structures that, that do not relate to the concerns of the, the average person who, you know, has to earn a wage and, and, and doesn't have surplus yep. capital. So basically on the grounds of seeing that, I think this is where we, we really came to converge, maybe one from a more academic, one from a more activist perspective, to see how, you know, even these parts of the left that claim to be revolutionary have actually forgotten what it means to be revolutionary in a capitalist society. Nice. So a, a kind of a unity of uh, theory and praxis, maybe. Um, but yeah, no, I think that that background is really it's really useful because obviously the the collection has a, a pretty a pretty wide uh, remit and a you know pr- pretty ambitious, I guess, aims. Um, but why you know don't don't want to put words in in either of your mouths? What what why do you think the collection is important? Um, what you know what are you hoping to to achieve with this? Well. I think if, if I can just start out on this one, I mean, what I would say, and I think this ties in with what, what you were telling us at the, at the beginning of this interview, is actually the perspectives contained in this collection, or at least from my perspective, that they're incredibly diverse. That They don't actually all convert. But the one point that they do share is an understanding that, you know, precisely because of the historic defeat of the of the working class movement that we've experienced over the past 40 or so years, we are living in this in this period of unprecedented conformism, where essentially you get to choose between a hegemonic left liberal technocracy 
and reactionary nationalist ideology. And both of these things, fundamentally, you know, they just serve the, the dictates of the, of the same big capitalist interests. And then you have this, this ghettoized so-called radical left, which is essentially just a loyal opposition to the technocracy. So, I mean, actually, it, it, um, the, the title of the collection is something that I should, I should probably have started off by asking you about. But is that what you're, when you talk about the conformist rebellion, is that where this, this title comes in? This kind of. Exactly, I would yeah. say. It's like essentially this, this radical left, which cl- claims to be a re- rebellion and even considers itself, like I was saying, revolutionary, actually just mirrors and in many ways accelerates actually the most authoritarian aspects of capitalist restructuring is mediated through this hegemonic left liberal ideology that you see in institutions like the EU or the US Democratic Party and and so on. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, So (laughs) I couldn't put it uh, uh, more succinctly, but um, so this is not, you know, there are a lot of critiques of the left already existing uh, on the market. And, and lots of critiques of, you know, left liberalism from people, you know, fighting against woke racism or, you know, the transgender identity wars and so on. You have, you have pretty good critiques of these tendencies from, you know, Adolf Reed Jr. non-site, from, um, I don't know, uh, Kathleen Stock, Helen Joyce, Abigail Shriver on, on the transgender wars. But none of these critiques, um, if, if you would frame them as critiques of the left, none of these critiques are, are Marxist critiques of the left. So that, that I, that's what makes this collection really, um, really unique. And um, so because people were confused at the beginning when I put this collection together, they said, well, well Marxist is, is the main figure of the left, okay? And then the question, of course, um, evolved, how could you make, how could you possibly make a critique of the left from a Marxist perspective? You know, wouldn't that be to, wouldn't that be a category mistake? But as, as Joshua just explained, the left is no longer in the Marxist tradition and it hasn't been for a while. You know, so it's a completely different tradition that the left uh, um, is a part of, you know, it's, it's, it's a continuity of, of, you know, neoliberal restructuring from the 70s and, and, and theoretically it goes further back to the, to the birth of uh, postmodernist ideology. So Marxism is a, is a counter, is a counter movement, is a counter theory to that. Right. So I guess this, this sort of raises the question then, because um, the collection is obviously framed as, as you said, a, a set of Marxist critiques of the left. But what, what do you mean? What do the contributors mean by, quote unquote, the left? This, this term, which seems to be, to be thrown around um, probably more frequently than previously as, as, a, as an insult these days. So, yeah, what, <laughs> what, what do you actually mean by the left? Yeah, it's just an, it's just in our circles that this this is framed as an insult. <laughs> Once we get out of about bubbles, we realize it's it's a it's a compliment for a lot of people. So I can't speak for Joshua, but what I mean by the left is the ruling class. Very simply, if identity politics and eco-socialism, so-called eco-socialism, hasn't made that clear in one way or another in the last decade or so, then COVID. COVID and the reaction to, to, to the coronavirus certainly has. 
when the, the left or the ruling class is mostly recruited from what I would call, I would call it the university class. Some people say email job case or PMC or petite bourgeoisie. I think that is a wrong signifier. But, but they were the ones who have done nothing in the last uh, um, years but boycott working class interest in the name of supporting so-called uh, vulnerable and marginalized groups and retain while retaining their own uh, ideological and material power. And it's interesting or, or rather mysterious that wage workers and their children, their families never belong to the category of, of the vulnerable. You know, if you point towards vaccine mandates, hurting workers the most, the left just says, okay, but you just want people to die. So, but uh, what, I, what I really want to point out two really useful concepts of the left, um, are two related concepts, um, which I think are on-spot observations about the left that I'd like to mention. One is by uh, a Belgian sociologist, uh, Daniel Zamora. I think Daniel Zamora Vargas is the full name. And he put forward um, a really, really important thesis, uh, namely that exclusion has replaced exploitation in the left's social analysis in the last decades. So um, obviously this is a thesis going back all the way to Herbert Marcuse and the Frankfurt School, but the, the main point of this thesis is that the proletariat in this Im imagery of the left is perceived as being part of the system, as being inside the system. So the left thinks the proletariat is somewhat profiting from its position within the system, within the capitalist system, being white and being eligible to vote. They own a car, right. they own a color TV. But um, what the left says generally is that, well, at least they work, they earn money, and that's that. So they shift the point of concern away from workers towards exclusion from society and not, you know, the worker who's obviously inside the system because exploitation is an internal relation. So the left has shifted its view to, the exclu to exclusion from society. So they, the point of concern is say immigrants, sans papier, racial minorities, women, I don't know why women, but you have to ask them, I guess. So people whose sex life deviates from the norm and all the rest of it. So exploitation comes not only a blind spot of these newer theories on the left, but it becomes completely unproblematic. Right. And that is, that is how leftists become, you know, these, these uh, I would say, I would say neoliberal apologists and even, you know, constitutive of the ruling class. So, but the other, ah, yeah. yeah, I was just, I was just about to ask there, you if, if the first thing two, is, yeah, there's the second, yep. the second observation about the left is um, brilliant insight from, from, from Jeff Schullenberger, who's also the co-editor of the forthcoming collection on COVID and the left that we're doing together. And he says that part of why the left has embraced uh, COVIDian biopolitics is that it's attached, attached to the rhetorical stance of accusing those in power of not caring, of being heartless. You know, they would say there are people literally dying and so on. So being a zero COVID dead ender offers a way to outflank the liberals on the front. So this is how the critique of austerity measures has been replaced with um, total lockdown and, and, and zero COVID policies. But of course, this also entails the left's incapacity, incapacity to position itself critically 
towards these new modes of power that precisely le legitimate themselves on the basis of being caring and protective. You know, this, this caring, protective, caring for the vulnerable and so on. That is a mode of power and that is the mode of power we're seeing today. I would even say it's a dominant mode of power today. And this is why I have also said in one of my last substacks that the ideology of care and protecting the vulnerable has become the major ideological front for leftism when in fact, it hides, first of all, material interests. You know, it's like the only yep. people who profit from mass vaccinations are, <laughs> are pharmaceutical companies. But it is done in the rhetoric of care. And it does quite the opposite of what it fails to do. It hurts people. It hurts the vulnerable. So the language of care and consideration and so on is, is, is just authoritarian window dressing, in my view. In that sense, the left is not only the ruling class, uh, per se, um, in, 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 many, in many versions of it, it's the authoritarian uh, ruling class. Right. Interesting. So <clears throat> replacing ex exploitation with exclusion, exploitation is excluded from the analysis and an ideology of care for an authoritarian ruling class. Joshua, what, what about you? Because I think this is an important question to, you know, to identify the enemy. Yeah. Um, I would have a, a somewhat different answer. Um, first of all, I would say, um, uh, you know, the, the classical left, um, the left that can be identified with Marx, it rises and falls essentially over the course of the historical sequence 1789 to 1989. You know, it begins when in the course of the bourgeois revolutions, the working class comes to distinguish itself from the third estate in general on the basis of having fundamentally antagonistic uh, material interests. And then on that, that basis, it, it encounters and begins to assimilate of uh, Marxist theory, and that's really what you see happening in, you know, the first and second internationals. And this, you know, finally culminates with the revolutionary period after the First World War, which results, unfortunately, in no world revolution, but it does result in the emergence of these workers' states, which institutionalize a kind of compromise between the classes, um, not only within them, but internationally through their, their secondary effects in terms of creating a space for, um, uh, you know, social democracy and, and a strong labor movement and also these, these sort of worker-linked import substitution-oriented anti-colonial regimes in the third world. And that's what many people identify as like the, the post-World War II compromise or whatever. And that, in a certain sense, is, is, is the high point of the left, although of course it's internally contradictory because it's a high point and it's also a point at which this worker-oriented left serves to integrate the working class within bourgeois society one, one way or another. But precisely because it's internally contradictory and it cannot resolve that contradiction between revolution and preservation, it stagnates, it decays, and, and it decomposes. It, it cannot generate a sufficient response to the capitalist offensive that you see being deployed with, with restructuring in the 70s with stuff like the, um, uh, the Volcker shock and ultimately with like the, the self-demolition of the, of the Eastern Bloc. And I would say after that point, the material basis for that Marxist left was actually has been destroyed by a capitalist offensive. And what we are seeing now and what is identified now for the most part as the left with a few exceptions is actually the appropriation of this legacy in the interests of precisely the, um, the ruling class faction that Elena was talking about. 
And they actually have, have nothing to do. They have no association, direct or indirect, with any kind of um, uh, working class struggle. And they're simply one of the forms of ideological mediation through which um, uh, monopoly capital imposes its hegemony on society as a whole. And I mm -hmm. think maybe the, the one difference that, that, that I might have with Elena is I, I would emphasize that this left is not so much the ruling class as simply one of its factions. Because if you look at the ruling class on a global level, if you have this global analysis of imperialism, I think it's, it's very hard to see the left is ruling in, say, India or Iran or Russia or China. But essentially, you have exactly the same modality of um, accumulation based off the, the complete kind of dissolution of working class self-organization in those areas as well. So I would be more inclined to say that there's a single international ruling class and that in some zones, uh, left liberalism is the way it deploys its hegemony. And in other zones, it's more a question of a, a national conservatism or a religious conservatism. But at the end of the day, what they actually mean for the working class and for somebody who, you know, has to work for a wage for a living is essentially identical. Mm, I think there's yeah, a, yeah, I, a nice, a nice, a nice kind of balance between those those two accounts. You know, Lane, there's, you know, maybe that's there's a kind of a theoretical presentation, and then Joshua, there's there's maybe some of the, you know, the historical overview. I think I'll leave it to listeners to to decide if they're compatible or or in, incompatible. But I think there's you know certainly some some interesting <clears throat> points of different emphasis there. Can I just uh, can I just add something? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just ahead. just to correct myself, I think of course uh, Joshua is absolutely correct, and I yeah. Uh, I take the blame. I'm, <laughs> I'm a Japanologist, and I have really, uh, I only have the G7 nations in mind when I speak of the left as the ruling class. Of course, he's absolutely correct. If you go to Iran, if you go to Saudi Arabia, I mean, obviously, it's not the left that is the ruling class of Saudi Arabia. But I was, I was talking about, you know, the environment that that we live in, you know, and and the most powerful nations, uh, the industrialized industrialized nations on, on Earth, the G7 nations, and. Of course, um, we see those emerging patterns. Uh, we see China, but then it's really, really difficult to say what kind of ideology the Chinese government would hold. You know, would you say, would you characterize um, the, the Chinese government as, as, as non-left or left? I, I don't think that these parameters make, make any sense there. So of course, if you take a global perspective uh, that, you know, the left is the ruling class probably doesn't hold. So I agree to that. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the topic of the of the <clears throat> of the collection is is mostly um, yes. kind of the West, if, if you want to uh, frame it like yes. that. But to, I guess to get more into the kind of the the collection itself, and I'm you know aware kind of uh, asking you to speak on behalf of contributors to a greater or lesser extent. But one thing I did want um, to ask you both about was the structure of the collection as a whole, and, and why did you you know why did you kind of put it in the sections and the kind of the basic overall frame that you did what what was the what was the thinking there um how how was that an attempt to to critique the whole of the left if you will well here i mean i can can only speak for for my own logic behind structuring the book in this way but i would say in the first section what we're trying to highlight is the transition away from articulating political subjectivity on the basis of the you know economic position of the working class within the production of surplus value 
and the transition towards this postmodern construction of new cross-class subjectivities, which actually function to mystify that, that objective antagonism that exists in the economic phase. You know, essentially communitarianism in, in all of its forms. And then in the second, we, we go into more detail on the way left liberalism specifically um, constructs this, this mystification. And we look at the way the left liberal cultural elite formulates this, these communitarian ideologies, um, whether that be in art or popular media or political communication. And then in the third, third section, we deal with certain very specific academic and activist left narratives whether they be racial capitalism, the climate emergency, or post-colonialism. And we try to highlight the way they function as particular articulations of this general project of a class hegemony. Right. No, I think that's a really clear presentation. And just to, to let listeners know, the, the first part is, is called From Class to Community, Race, Gender, and Class cross-class struggles the second the culture of the conformist rebellion culture wars identity politics and art and then the third the eclipse of emancipation confronting streams in the academic and activist left today so i mean i, I think it's a i think the reason why i wanted to ask that question is because i think it's a, a really clear division into you know what are the <clears throat> the ways that the i guess kind of leftist and analysis of society structures itself what are the, kind of the key problems and questions that it asks but um i don't know if elaine if you had uh, a complementary or or so, contradictory yeah. uh, logic no, no, to, no. to apply no well it, that was joshua that was your idea actually of structuring the volume this way so i left the question <laughs> to you but but um no what i what i found extraordinary um because um we have three chapters on art so that was interesting because I asked uh, some people to write something about, you know, culture, culture wars uh, more specifically and more broadly that we have uh, Maren Thurm. She has one, she has a chapter on film, on cultural representation in film. Previous, but, previous guest on the podcast, of course. And, and a friend of 25 years of mine. <laughs> and, and uh, but then we have, three other uh, chapters on art and art criticism. And that is really interesting. That is an interesting, I don't know, prism to, to, um, to consider the left. Um, you know, there was also, I think at one point, Adam Lehrer um, asked me to, maybe he can contribute. And he, he sent in a really interesting proposal, but then we had all the authors in already. But art, um, we have one contribution by Hasib Ahmed. Uh, he's a famous artist, or he tells me he's famous. I think he is. And uh, his, his chapter is called uh, Art is a Left-Wing Hobby. So it's interesting how these, uh, why I say the left is the ruling class. You can, you can see an art and art criticism as a prism of, of leftist aesthetic hegemony. And, and um, so to anyone interested in, in that aspect, so anybody interested in art and representation, I think this volume makes a lot of sense. And um, Sorry, just, just, just to kind of yeah. um, get at the, 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 I guess, argument here. So would it be that the, this is the clearest place that you can see um, the domination of the left is in, is in art specifically? And why, why might that be the case because i mean yeah if you have a look at the the topics of the uh, of the chapters you can see there is a you know representation of um cultural representation that's maron's chapter and you know art as well 
but yeah is, is this the, the the vanguard of the left what's what's the what do you think explains the um preponderance of of chapters on art no it's not it's not um it's it's not the preponderance of the left but it's it's as i said it's a prism and which which you can more more clearly see also who has access to art right and and who goes to art exhibitions and who uh, hegemonizes uh, art discussions that are that are I think led in very very um, tiny circles of you know uh, elaborate um, you know <laughs> very uh, closed um, elite circles of people who who hegemonizes these these ideas and I think it's just art is interesting because I have no idea about art I'm I'm really not an I mean I I'm a musician but I the whole representational aspect of art is something that is completely beyond me. But a lot of people we asked, they wanted to, even if they if they were not specifically, uh, you know, any experts in art criticism and art history, they wanted to write about art because they thought that where, you know, the hegemony of the left expresses itself, like formidably, that's in, in the art world. And uh, that, that, so Samir Gandesha has written a, a, a piece that's called dictatorship contra critique. And this is also, he talks about the, um, these, these murals. Um, Joshua, remind me of the, um, the artist who, who painted these murals, I think, in Washington. And um, I, forget, I forget the name, doesn't matter. And he, he talks about how these murals have been taken, um, you know, depicting, I think, George Washington and the founding, you know, uh, 76 and the founding of the nation and the founding fathers and how that was, how, how that uh, objection to this mural was, was, um, was understood as, as, a, as a turning point in, in when, when, when art, art was the most vocal, the art world was the most vocal expression of all the, what we call the woke criticisms of society. So, you know, you remember the, the um, you know, the Hannah Schwartz episode, the letter to the MoMA and, and all of these things. And it's, it's really interesting to see um, how much traction the art world has gained from that side and how hege hegemonic these, the, the leftist um, um, imagery has, has become there. Mm. So I just, I guess I wanted to move on to one of the, the bigger questions. I don't know if this is a fair question um, to ask the two of you or, or not, but I did want to, I did want to pose it. And this is what is, you know, what's the central argument of the collection as a whole? I mean, can you summarize it? Is, is there a, is there a kind of, I was going to say a take home message, but like for the listener who's on the, you know, on the run and they don't have, you know, they don't have too much time. What's the kind of the sh shortest possible uh, summary of what the, the collection as a whole argues not not that they shouldn't obviously read the whole thing cover to cover but uh, yeah what's the central argument um, should I go ahead so it's actually written in the book <laughs> the central argument is in the in the introduction so I might just quote uh, two or three sentences from there so so the the central argument of the collection is that the left has abandoned the project of the abolition of capitalist relations of production. And uh, so we say that it has abandoned the abolition of the concrete form of specifically capitalist domination, well, that, which is exploitation of, of wage labor, and replaced it with moralistic concerns about, um, you know, sexism, racism, ableism, homophobia, transphobia, Islamophobia, etc. 
as forms of discrimination or oppression, but within the capitalist order. So we make a, so the central argument is that we want to differentiate between exploitation as the fundamental form in which, you know, capitalism operates uh, as a historical specific form of production um, against um, forms of discrimination or oppression. And these two terms, um, exploitation and oppression or exploitation and discrimination get conflated all the time. And we want to really tell them apart. And we want to say that there happens a shift in the discursive reality of the left from the abolition of wage labor, which was probably at some historical point in time, as Joshua said, uh, still on the agenda of the left. So from the abolition of wage labor and hence capitalism itself, to the abolition of discrimination, but within capitalism. So um, capitalist relations of production would be left intact. And, and, and this is where our criticism is aimed against. And we also, we also say this is not only not radical, but it's shrouded in accommodation to the hegemonic ideology of capital as well. And also there is no, this is a point I think is really important. There is no such thing what we're trying to say with this collection, there's no such thing as an isolated class war against individuals whose opinion one doesn't like, you know, or, or there's no such thing as an isolated class war against the right, against the right wing, or against uh, populism or against any political faction. Such projects are categoric, categorically reactionary. So class warfare targets the ruling class and nothing but the ruling class. The bourgeoisie, you can call it, uh, you can call it also bourgeois hegemony in the institutions, but class, class warfare targets nothing but the ruling class and, um, and not whites and not men and not um, heteronormativity or anything like it. And we want to, um, you know, um, consider this and draw attention back to this to these fundamental themes of of you know um mm. social transformation exploitation and the abolition of wage labor sounds you know, second of those sounds pretty good I, I also like the phrase shrouded accommodation that that's what the, the left is doing but joshua would you have the same uh the same take on the the, the central the central argument or if if you do i mean what's you know what's uh, to to move forward as well what makes this a specifically Marxist critique of the left? Uh, you're, you're asking me that question. I mean, I would say kind of building on, on what I've said in, in, in response to the previous questions, you, you have to divide that question into, because on the one hand, there was the classical Marxist, which both had a program of the abolition of bourgeois society and also functioned as a way the working class was integrated within that same society on, on the basis of the, the gains and concessions it was able to win through its struggle. And that Marxist left has always and necessarily must always have it, its self-critique, which you know first mm -hmm. emerges, I would say, perhaps in the, in the German Social Democratic Party with the debate over revisionism. Eventually, the, the self-criticism of how this revolutionary um, aspiration tends to become crystallized actually as a force of, of compromise and integration within the working class movement. That is one form of Marxist critique of, of the, the Marxist working class based left. 
But in our sort of current, you know, post-1989, uh, post-modern environment, there's another critique which, which tends to assume more primacy precisely because the working class movement is so weak. And that is the critique of this post-modern left or carrying out an ideological obscuration of class and power. And so I would say there, there, there are actually these two critiques and you know, precisely because of the, the intellectual and political environment within which we live, um, our intervention in this edited volume focuses on that critique of postmodernism, not because the first critique isn't important, but because in a certain sense, we've been so defeated, it, it is often less directly relevant. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess as, as, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, the, the chapter that I did in, in the collection, what, what makes that a specifically Marxist critique of the left? And it's obviously not attached to a, you know, to a, to a Marxist political party. It doesn't have that, that direct um, <clears throat> kind of practical, immediate political application, or at least I, I don't really think my, my chapter does, but I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you know, as you were saying, that's the, you know, that's the, the situation, the historical period that, that we're in. So, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a question both of the the political aims perhaps and, and some of the tools um, being used. But um, I also did want to ask the uh, the two of you again, and I, and I hope this sort of follows on from from that that last question. If you think there's any points that readers will be surprised to find in the collection, I mean, if not, or to, to come at this from another angle, did either of you sort of? change your mind on any aspects of the critique in the course of reading and editing the contributors essays because obviously you know Marxist critique this should be a kind of a living you know doctrine or whatever there should be some kind of still room to be <laughs> to be surprised to be kind of uh, convinced of, of new things or to see at the least um, you know the method applied in, in different contexts and with with kind of interesting contextually specific results perhaps. So I was surprised to learn. Um, so I, we have this, this text. Um, it's the opening chapter by Todd Cronin. It's called Anti-Discrimination and the End of Marxism, the Roots of Contemporary Politics and Cold War Theory and Culture. And it's interesting because it's a, I would say, an, an on-spot critique of, of the Frankfurt School, among other schools uh, of thought. And, and it's... Um, to me, it's interesting because I have been studying um, Adorno for such a long time, and I, and I've I've been an avid reader, and um, so my daughter's second name is is Theodora. <laughs> anyway, I've I've been quite a bit of a, of an Adornian um, throughout my my academic career, and um, so when I read Todd's critique uh, of the Frankfurt School, which is basically that they were the ones actively pushing for, um, for this identitarian and, and uh, approach, you know, Jewish identity politics in that case, against class politics. And so because the German, the German dis discussion about, um, you know, the Frankfurt School is very different. It's very different. There, is, there has been a book there was a book about Dorna's political economy and, and all these, these um, HM Marxists, they're trying to tell me that, that Adorno and the Frankfurt School were, were, were a stout Marxist. And that was the first time when I read his, his essay, it was the first time I realized, okay, they are not Marxists at all. You know, they, they are not that much interested in, 
and abolishing, you know, and, and focusing on class and capitalist relations of production. And so that was in this um, clarity, it hasn't been it hasn't been presented to me that argument because of this this other infiltration of Frankfurt School with radical Marxism in my past. Joshua, any anything that's kind of um, you know in the process of of kind of editing, you know, commissioning the essays, all that sort of thing. Anything which kind of jumps out to you as a you know something which you it made you see something in a different way or anything like that. Well, I think something that jumped out to me that that I was already aware of to some extent. And it ties in with what I was saying about the the death of this um, classical left is that I think we've now reached a point where because the the working class movement has been has been weak for so long, um, so much of what was the common currency of debate when Marxism was a, um, a mass movement about like the um, the practice of politics and a political strategy. Um, you know, political thought properly so-called is is completely um, beyond the horizon of discourse, even of the of the most of the most progressive intellectuals. And in a sense, it's um uh, it's it's dead to us. And and insofar as it, it it can be developed, and I think it's absolute necessity that it be developed. It really has to be developed, I would say, you know, completely outside of, of academia and in, and in unity with these, these efforts of, um, uh, of worker organizing, you know, in much the same way that, that Marxism originally developed in the 19th century, because, you know, near the end of the 19th century, you know, it's something that stuck in my mind, you know, Plekhanov, one of the founders of Russian Marxism, he was like, you know, there are basically no Marxists in the university. And, yeah, know, that was not necessarily a bad thing. And actually, as much as many people would claim otherwise, it's, it's probably even more true than it was then, you know, now. Yeah, and I mean, it, I guess this this was sort of what I was maybe in a very cat handed way driving out with the, the question is like, if if there if the I guess the quality or the insight or the power of Marxist critique comes you know, from its relationship with political movements, and there aren't any of those, then what what will that mean for the, you know, for the for the scholarship? I mean, this is kind of one of the classic um, descriptions of Western Marxism is, you know, after <clears throat> after the defeat of or the failure to internationalize the revolution of, in Russia, all of the Western Marxists turned to kind of aesthetics and philosophy and away from thinking about about political practice so i guess that that's that's something which maybe listeners can can reflect on when reading the the collection is you know what what sort of marxism is possible in the current historical period okay listeners this is the end of the free interview if you want to hear the rest of it as well as our after party where we unpick the issues raised in the interview uh, that's all over at patreon.com slash bungacast Thank you.